Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the word, ready to focus and concentrate. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word and for the promises that we have in your word that you have given us so many different uh, magnificent and precious promises that by them we may uh, grow and mature and that we can come to understand your faithfulness and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening and we continue to uh, go through Old Testament passages related to future things that you might encourage us with the fact that uh, just as you have declared the end from the beginning and are in control of history, you are also uh, sovereignly in control over our lives and you watch over us and protect us and you will bring to completion in our lives that which you have intended. And so we can relax, we can trust you, and no matter what chaos we may be going through, whether it has to do with uh, employment challenges, whether it has to do with health challenges, whether it has to do with uh, any of the other details in life related to family, related to material things, uh, that we know we can trust you and that you will watch over us and our lives are in your hands. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. We have come in our study in Revelation to the 17th and 18th chapters in Revelation, which focus on the final manifestation of the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man is a term that I use to represent man's uh, political, economic, and religious attempts. Uh, sometimes there's those elements are a little more separate. Sometimes they're a little more uh, connected together. But those are the attempts uh, on the part of man to make life work to control his destiny, to find success and meaning and happiness apart from God. And the kingdom of man has various manifestations all down through history as we study Scripture, uh, primarily in terms of these great empires that we look at through the grid of human history from Egypt in the ancient world all the way up to uh, modern manifestations of kingdoms. But what we see in the Scripture is that all of these kingdoms ultimately promote uh, what the Bible calls worldliness, the, the world system, the way of thinking that um, 
that characterizes Satan in his fall, the arrogance of man, man's thinking that he can make it all work, find solutions to his problems, and carve out his destiny without giving regard to the Lord or his word. The final manifestation of that kingdom is what we call sometimes the revived Roman Empire because it is the final stage of the a fourth kingdom that is seen in the um, in the Old Testament prophecies of Daniel. There's the the legs of iron from the uh, uh, statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel chapter two. Daniel seven, we have the uh, indescribable beast, the indescribable monster uh, that has that has its final form with uh, ten horns, uh, seven heads and ten horns, and then we have the final manifestation it's described in in revelation this is the uh called babylon in revelation 17 and 18 and down through the ages there have been those who have uh, interpreted revelation 17 and 18 to mean a spiritual to to be a spiritual babylon as opposed to a literal physical uh, restoration rebuilding of the actual physical babylon on the uh, on the euphrates river and it's interesting, as I've gone back through some studying in, even in the last week, I, I ran across comments from both G.H. Lang, who was a mid-tribulationist in the middle of the 19th century, as well as uh, Clarence Larkin, who some of you know, he wrote a uh, well-illustrated chart book called Dispensational Truth that came out in the, about 1917 or 1918, and both of those men believed that Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 would be a literal physical rebuilding of Babylon as the, as the uh, political, economic, religious center in the kingdom of the beast, the revived Roman Empire. And so uh, by going back and looking at these prophecies in the Old Testament, we can see the, this thread that, as I pointed out before, that there are various threads of prophecy that start in the Old Testament. You can follow them through in their uh, expansions down th- and uh, elucidations down through the Old Testament, and these get brought together, and all these so-called prophetic loose ends get tied together in a nice little bundle in Revelation. You can't understand what's in Revelation unless you first of all understand what is said in the Old Testament, and you can't really get a good understanding of those Old Testament prophecies until unless you carry them all the way through into Revelation. So last time we started to trace this by going back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, looking at the original Babylon, which is located near uh, the site of Karbala there on the map. That's a modern map of Iraq, and it's uh, just uh, to the uh, northwest our northeast, rather, of Karbala on the uh, Euphrates River. And this is the site in the ancient world of the Plain of Shinar, the Plain of Shinar, which became uh, Babylon. It was under the control of the Medes and the Persians for a long time, and then the Parthians, and on into the modern period where today it is modern, uh, modern Iraq. And it was from this area that Abraham originally came from Ur of the Chaldees, which is down to the southeast of Babylon, and he made his migration across to the land that God promised him. But you can see from this map that Babylon and Jerusalem are 
are almost on the uh, same uh, same level, very close to each other, and so uh, there's this conflict between the, in the scriptures between Jerusalem and Babylon. Jerusalem, the city of God; Babylon, the city of man. Just because it has a symbolic significance doesn't mean it is, does not have a literal physical manifestation. There are many literal physical things in the scripture that also have a symbolic meaning associated with them. The last time we went through the foundations in Genesis 10 and 11, then I took you briefly through Isaiah 13 and 14. I want to go back and pick up just a couple of threads in Isaiah 13 and 14 before we go on to uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 50 and 51. First of all, I think it's important that we note the timing in Revelation 13. And the reason that I'm going back and taking a little more time with this is because Isaiah 13 as well as Jeremiah 50 and 51 are passages that for, that in many commentators among many Bible teachers, uh, they, these were references where they went to show that Babylon uh, was completely destroyed, and they would either uh, usually identify that with the destruction of Babylon in 539 by the Medes and the Persians, or sometime later, uh, later on in uh, in history. But the conclusion was that Babylon is just uh, has, was destroyed in the ancient world, and so nothing was left. And from there, they went to teach that this was the the prophecy in Revelation 17 and 18 was simply. Um, related to a symbolic fulfillment. It really related to the that the spirit of Babylon would be the spirit of the, the Antichrist and the revived Roman Empire. The timing is clearly set in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Verse 6 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now that phrase, day of the Lord, is a technical term that is used in numerous prophecies that only have their fulfillment in the end time. The term day of the Lord does not refer to a literal 24-hour day. The Hebrew word yom for day can refer to a period of time, such as we would say, well, as you may be talking to one of your children and they want to uh, get a car, and you say, well, when that day comes... You're going to have to buy your own insurance. What you mean by that is when that time comes, and you're using day in a generic sense. And the same thing would be true in Hebrew when it's not used with a number such as first day, second day, third day, or other qualifications such as we have in the first chapter of Genesis. Evening and morning were day one. And that clearly indicates from the description, evening and morning, as well as the use of a of a number that qualifies the use of day to be a 24-hour day. But we don't have that with other terms such as the day of the Lord. It simply refers to a time that is related to the Lord as opposed to the time in history from uh, the fall of man up to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the time of man. We have the times of the Gentiles, for example, 
from the destruction of Jerusalem in 539 B.C. by the Babylonians all the way through to the end of the tribulation period. That's the times of the Gentiles. And man is given time by God to to carry out his purposes and to establish his kingdom and to respond to, to God's overtures of grace. But the time will come when God has given man all of the rope he needs to hang himself, and then God is going to return in judgment and establish his kingdom. And so the term day of the Lord is one of these terms that has a has a broad sense in Scripture. One sense has to do with judgment, and we go to many passages such as the one here, which talks about the judgment on Babylon, other passages in Joel 2, which relate to the end time judgments right at the end of the tribulation, passages uh, in, in Amos 5, other places like that that t- connect to the restoration of the Jews to the land. And so that is the, and you'll see as we do here in verse 8, it's often uh, p- depicted with terminology related to labor pains, the giving the giving of birth to the kingdom of God. And so the the pains of the tribulation are identified or uh, are p- depicted as labor pains. And then once the child is born, that's the birth of the kingdom. The and so it's still referred to as the day of the Lord, and there are other passages that talk about the glories of the day of the Lord and the wondrous uh, blessings on the earth during the time of the day of the Lord. So the term is a broad term that can be used of specific time periods within the broader concept. So it can cover just about anything from the tribulation to the second coming to the millennial kingdom, or it can refer to specific events within uh, that time frame. So verse 6 says, well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. This is a future term, an eschatological term. It is not a term to describe a historic judgment on Babylon in 539 B.C. or any other time within history. The day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. That terminology is loaded with a sense that there's going to be something unique about this judgment, identifying it as specifically coming from God. Uh, verse 7, all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, they will be afraid. Verse 8, pangs and sorrows will take hold of them, they will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. And so we'll see in numerous places that when we study the day of the Lord, that it is compared to the, these labor pains. Uh, that take place. Verse 9 again repeats, repeats this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, both wrath and fierce anger. Now there's a juxtaposition of those two terms that we've seen in Revelation, where you have the concept of wrath and anger to expressing the severity of God's judgment against unbelievers. And uh, the wrath of the Lamb during the tribulation period as well as the wrath of God. And note in verse 10, we have these astrogeophysical uh, traumas that occur. The sun will be darkened 
and it's going forth. The moon will not cause its light uh, to shine. We saw that that is evident in the last part of the bold judgments, this kind of of uh, darkening of the sun, the moon becoming like red because it has a uh, little light to reflect from the sun. It's also a time, verse 11, of worldwide punishment. It's not just punishment of Babylon, but I, God says, I will punish the world for its evil. So there, this judgment isn't something localized to just the kingdom of Babylon, but for the world and the wicked for their iniquity, I will halt the arrogance of the proud. And throughout these passages, there's specific reference to the ending of the pride of man, the arrogance, uh, the arrogance of man. And then it goes on to say in verse 12, I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold. That means human beings are going to be uh, almost wiped out, and to find one is going to be as difficult as finding gold. And so that is, an, again, an allusion to the kind of destruction that's going to occur at the same time as the destruction of Babylon. So this can't refer to a historic, uh, to a historic fulfillment of Babylon sometime in the ancient world. Nothing like that ever, ever occurred before. Then again in verse 13, God says, I will shake the heavens. The earth will move out of her place. This is the kind of of an astro-geophysical disaster that we've never seen before. It's only associated with the end time towards the end of the tribulation, uh, towards the end of the tribulation period. We skip down to verse 19. Uh, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you've uh, ever driven down around the Dead Sea and seen the area where Sodom and Gomorrah were located, it is just uninhabitable. I mean, there's nothing there. It's just barren, empty wasteland. And the, the statement is made in verse 20, it will never be inhabited. Now, I want you to remember this because this is stated at least five or six times within this chapter and Jeremiah 50 and 51, it will never again be inhabited. And that cannot be said of Babylon historically. Uh, Babylon was did not really diminish into almost nothingness until 1000 A.D. It was, there was still... Uh, it was still a village, and even through most of the time in the last thousand years, there have been various uh, Arab and Bedouin uh, settlements on the ancient site of Babylon. Uh, it has it, it. It's not a large area now. Saddam Hussein has attempted to attempted to rebuild it. The Iraqi government would like to continue that. But that's not going to happen until the Lord's timing. It can't be manufactured or generated. But the clear statement of this scripture is that it will be as barren and as empty as Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's nothing there where Sodom and Gomorrah were. It will never be inhabited, verse 20 says, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there. And see, that just hasn't happened. There have been Arab villages there, as I just stated. Nor will shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But wild beasts of the desert will lie there. Their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there. Wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels. 
and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. This is, see, what, what you often have is people who really push the boundaries of interpretation by saying this is just poetic hyperbole. This is just exaggeration. It doesn't really mean that there's no uh, habitation there. It doesn't really mean that it is absolutely desolate. The trouble is there's too many places that repeat those ideas again and again. Now, the other thing that's important to note here is that chapter 13 cannot be separated from chapter 14. In the original Hebrew, there are no verse divisions, no chapter divisions. Uh, we tend to read these things, okay, we're through with chapter 13, now we're going to move on to another topic in the next chapter. But there's not a topic shift between 13 and 14. There is a continuation, but there is a shift in focus. For the focus in chapter 13 has been on how God will judge Babylon. And now in 14, the focus is on what happens when God judges Babylon in relationship to his plan for Israel. And there it is clear that, that there is a reunification of the northern and southern tribes at the time of the destruction of Babylon. That never happened historically. For the Lord, verse, chapter 14, verse 1, we read, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel. Uh, Jacob is uh, the, in the south, emphasizing the more the southern kingdom, and will still choose Israel, the northern kingdom. These are used in parallels. And settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of of Jacob, the strangers clinging would be Gentiles who have become believers, and they recognize that salvation comes from Israel and Israel only in terms of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord has mercy at this time, at the time that Babylon was destroyed. There is a reunification of Israel in their own land. Then verse 2, then people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them, that is, Gentiles, for servants and maids in the land of the Lord, indicating a level of prosperity among the Jews and a level of affluence where they have servants, and these servants are, are the Gentiles who have joined them. Now, that didn't happen in five uh, 38, when they began to return under Zerubbabel, it didn't happen under the returns under Ezra and Nehemiah in the next century. It's never happened historically. So this has to all refer to some future event. And then verse 3 continues to identify the timing of this as the day of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the day uh, the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and hard bondage in which you were made to serve. So th- there's, there's the destruction of Babylon followed by a time of blessing. Rest from sorrow, uh, rest from fear. It is a time of worldwide peace and stability. That never happened at the time of the uh, original destruction of Babylon by the Persians or at any other, at any other time. So, 
Then they take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. Now, this is the passage that's going to deal with the fall of Satan, but you have to get the time right. That's why I've stressed this time factor of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and then in the day the Lord gives you rest. That's the millennium, uh, verse 3, which is all part of the day of the Lord. At that time that the Lord gives you rest. So what this is doing is saying way down here in the future, when the, when the Lord gives you rest from all of your enemies and Babylon has been destroyed, at that time in the future, which is still future for us, at that time in the future, you're going to take up this, this proverb, this taunt about the king of Babylon. So after everything has happened at the end of history, you're going to look back on this person called the king of Babylon and you're going to sing a taunt a, a, against him, looking back on his past history. So the events of chapter 14 are really stated way in the future from us. This is stated at the end of the tribulation, at the end of, the, of Daniel's 70th week at the second coming, and it looks back on the career of this person called um, the king of Babylon. Now, that is important. It's a little confusing, but that's important to understand that what is stated in chapter 14 isn't talking, the event of it, the circumstances of chapter 14, isn't something in the past, it's in the future. But from that future vantage point, they're looking back to his past uh, career and what he did. So the taunt or the Proverb begins in verse 4, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord's broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, struck the people in wrath. He who ruled the nations, that would be the king of Babylon, ruling the nations in anger. And verse 7 says, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. So at the time that this is, this is happening, the whole earth is at peace. That can only be the millennium, looking back on events during the tribulation period. This is also what they said. Skip down to verse, verse 9. I want you to notice that in verse 9 we have the reference. It says, at least the King James, uh, New King James says, Hell from beneath is excited about you. Now, the word there translated hell is the Hebrew word sheol. I don't know why they didn't translate it sheol. They do it at the, in verse 11, and they do it again in verse 15. And so this proverb focuses on the fact that this personage has been wiped out and judged with the destruction of Babylon. And at the time of his judgment, he was cast into Sheol, into the pit, which is comparable to the abyss in Revelation chapter uh, 19 and 20. Verse 15 says, You shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Now, who is this describing? Talks about this personage as one who is sent down to Sheol. Verse 9, Sheol from beneath is excited about you. And so it's uh, using personification to depict uh, uh, the, the joy of hell, as it were, uh, Sheol, the lake of fire welcoming, or the pit, the abyss welcoming this person. Uh, Sheol is excited about meeting you. Uh, it stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. This refers to all the leaders who followed the king of Babylon. All the leaders are down there already. Uh, it has raised uh, them up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you. Now, this is what uh, 
the kings of the nations who've already been defeated and they have been uh, sent to Sheol. They're there waiting for him. And when he arrives, this is they, they will say to him, have you also become as weak as we are? So they're, at, they're addressing the king of Babylon, who's really Satan, the power behind the throne, and they're looking at him now as he arrives in uh, the abyss. Uh, have you become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your stringed instrument. The maggot is spread over you, and the worms cover you. See, God is not afraid to talk in terms of good, just reality. And then they say, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, literally Halal ben Shahar, the star, the bright and morning uh, star, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nation. So they're addressing the real power behind the Antichrist, who is, as we've seen, the dragon or Satan. And they're addressing the motive that led him to deceive the nations, culminating in the great end-time battles during the tribulation period. For you have said in your heart, when did he say this? Well, this would take us back to his original fall. This is the thinking that characterized uh, Halal bin Shahar, uh, translated as Lucifer, the light-bearer, at the time of his fall. I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne upon the, above the stars of God, that is, rule over the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, that is, again, another term, a poetic term for ruling over all of the angels and their assemblies. Uh, Fourteen, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. His basic statement is he's going to function as God. And what they said to him is in verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Now, Sheol here can also be just a generic term for the grave. So we're not going to – don't go into the poetry here and try to get a, get specifics on uh, – well, over in Revelation 20, it says that, that uh, Lucifer is in chains uh, in the abyss. That's true. But – All of Revelation 20s, we'll look at it in a minute, can fit within this. This is more general language used in poetry, and he's not, there's not a specific um, analysis here. Well, he goes from point A to point B and then to point C. That if you try to do that with poetry, you'll end up creating some problems. It's more general. Uh, Describing his his uh, judgment and collapse. Now, he's further described as the one who made the earth tremble in verse 16, the one who shook the, tr- shook the kingdoms, and because of all that he did, it made the world a wilderness and destroyed its cities. Well, that only happens in the tribulation period with all of the judgments that occur. Um, but notice verse 19, but you are cast out of your grave, like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit. Again, this reference to the pit, uh, like a corpse trodden underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial. See, there's something distinct about his end, because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. And then we skip down to verse 22. Again, this emphasizes the total destruction of Babylon, 
the Lord says, I will rise up against them and cut off Babylon, uh, the name and remnant and offspring and posterity. I will also make it a possession for the porcupine, marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. It's just a tremendous picture of their destruction. Now, I want you to turn briefly. We'll just skip all the way forward to Revelation 19 and the description of what happens at the end of the of the tri- tribulation period. Verse 20 says, I saw the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So they move from their mortal body to whatever the uh, immortal body is instantly as they are sent directly to the lake of fire. Verse 21 says, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then we see in verse 1 of chapter 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. That is the event that is being described in the poetry of Isaiah chapter 14, is what happens when, when the beast and the false prophet and Satan are judged and destroyed and this taunt that is set up from the those who have preceded them that are reminding them of their arrogance and their attempt to rule rule the world. Well, that's Isaiah 13 and 14, and the point there is that the prediction in Isaiah is that Babylon would be completely destroyed. Now, when Isaiah wrote, wrote this, this is some 200 years before Babylon is going to destroy the northern kingdom. This is in the uh, 800s early 700s B.C., before uh, Nebuchadnezzar shows up. The Babylonian kingdom doesn't defeat the Assyrian kingdom until 612. So this is at least 100, 150 years before uh, Babylon becomes a world power. The major power that it's threatening Israel at the time that Isaiah wrote was Assyria. So he's he is including this uh, announcement of judgment in in Isaiah, uh, long before Babylon is a threat to the southern kingdom. Now, skip over with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. These are long chapters. I'm not going to go through them verse by verse. We would be here till Thursday night Bible class if I did that. Uh, Jeremiah uh, 50 and 51. These come at the also at the end of a series of judgments against the nations surrounding Israel, starting in chapter 46. Chapter 46, you have judgments pronounced against Egypt. You have judgments pronounced against uh, the Philistia, Philistia, Ammon, Moab, Elam, uh, all of these various judgments, Syria. And then, and most of those are only about a half a chapter in length. Then we come to chapter 50 and 51, and we have two extremely long chapters. Uh, chapter 50 has 46 verses, 
and chapter 51 has 64 verses. So we have about 110 to 120 verses on uh, the destruction of Babylon. So that shows its significance and it's important. Now, when Jeremiah is writing this, Babylon is the key power, and Babylon has already uh, attacked and defeated uh, Israel on two occasions, and probably if this is written after, could even be written after 586, after the destruction of the temple, because it's at the end of Jeremiah. So it is in this chapter that we have the prophecy related to the destruction of uh, the destruction of Babylon. So, in verse three, note: For out of the north a nation comes up against her. Well, the Persians, let's look at this map, we'll show it. If this is Babylon here, and the Persians are over in this area, the area of modern Iran, then the Persians would not be coming from the north, they would be coming from the east. So Persia could not be the uh, empire that uh, fulfills this particular prophecy. Uh, this prophecy is going to be filled by a coalition of an international coalition of nations that come out of the north that will include uh, at least uh, Turkey and probably Russia and some other uh, European powers. Out of the north, a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. There we have it again. No one's going to dwell, live there again. Um, they shall move, the, they shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. They're all going to leave. No one is going to be left there. Very few animals will be left there. Verse 4 says, in those days and in that time. So at the time of the, this destruction that is prophesied of Babylon, something else is going to happen in relation to Israel. The children of Israel shall come they and the children of Judah together. Here we have the children of Israel, northern kingdom, children of Judah, southern kingdom. They will come with continual weeping. They shall come and seek the Lord their God. So this is a return of the Jews to the land in repentance and turning back uh, back to God. They shall ask their way to Zion with faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. That is the establishment of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. So it's clearly stated that the destruction occurs from an enemy from the north. It occurs at a time that, that will uh, immediately precede the reunification of the northern and southern kingdoms and the return of the Jews to worship the Lord. That has not yet happened uh, in history. Uh, skip down to verse 8. Uh, move from the midst of Babylon. Go out of the land of the Chaldeans. There's a command here to flee. But when the Persians came in and defeated the Babylonians, Daniel stayed there. Daniel continued to live in Babylon. He continued to pray in his home. Uh, Babylon wasn't destroyed. They just had a change of administrations, a change of uh, imperial control. So, uh, nobody fled, but here the believers are commanded to flee from Babylon before this judgment takes place. For behold, verse 9, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country again. 
So it is going to be this alliance that invades from the north. Then skip down to about verse 15. Verse 15, we're told that this period is called the vengeance of the Lord, right at the end of the last two or three lines in verse 15, for it is the vengeance of the Lord. Uh, take vengeance on her as she has done so due to her. So, and I've pointed out before that the Hebrew word for vengeance isn't this idea of a self-serving vendetta, this idea of a personal, uh, self-oriented uh, retribution. It is the idea when it's applied to God of bringing about justice in history and judgment in history. And then we look at verse uh, 17, this uh, destruction of Babylon will occur at a time when Israel is scattered like sheep. And they have been, uh, they're not united. That comes afterward. It will, uh, verse, verses 19 to 20, it will precede the return of Israel to the land again. Verse 19, but I will bring back Israel to his home and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. No sin. And the sins of Judah, they shall not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. So this is a time when the nation is redeemed and in the land, in the kingdom. So this destruction of Babylon is clearly a future Babylon. But it's going to be completely destroyed. Verse 23, how Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. So this will continue to be this terrible, uh, terrible time of total desolation and destruction. Verse 32 says, the most proud shall stumble and fall and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities and it will devour all around him. There's going to be, uh, it's not going to be raised up again. Completely destroyed. Then we skip down to about verse 39. It has the same kind of language as in Isaiah that we saw in Isaiah 13. Therefore, the wild desert beast shall dwell there with the jackals. The ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever. Very strong language. Nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, so no one shall reside in it. No, no son of man will dwell in it. Pretty clear. That's never happened, happened, uh, before in history. And verse 41, people come from the north and a great nation, many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. So this is an international alliance that invades from the north and destroys, uh, Babylon. Then we get into chapter, uh, 51. Uh, 51 verse 5 says that this is a time um, after Israel has been in rebellion against God and they have been in sin and they have uh, thought that they were forsaken by God, but he has not forgotten them. So it comes after a long period of time when Israel has been uh, has thought that they have been forgotten by God. And 51 verses 6 and 45, again, we have this prediction that people need to flee. Also, that um, that it's a time of the Lord's vengeance. He will finally bring justice against Babylon. 
You skip down to verse, um, that's in verse 11 as well, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. And then in verses 24 to 26, the, we're told that it will be destroyed, but the building materials aren't even to be reused to build other things. Now, that really hasn't been true in history because the rubble in Babylon the, has been used and reused and reused by all of these villagers around Babylon to build their cities. There's a great source of, of, of bricks that have already been um, treated and already been used. Why go make new bricks when you can just uh, rob the ruins of Babylon? So verse 24 states, I will repay Babylon for all and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain who destroys all the earth, says the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. They shall not take away from you a stone for a corner nor a stone for a foundation. Not one stone is going to be removed to be used to build something else. But you shall be desolate forever. Again, never fulfilled in history. So what happened historically is that the city was the city just gradually died out. It took uh, about 1,500 years, but it gradually died out. Its glory was under uh, was actually under Nebuchadnezzar and under the uh, Neo-Chaldean Empire. And then they were defeated in 538 by the Persians. And then from that time on, it just gradually, slowly diminished in importance. But it was still present at the time of Christ. There was still a large Jewish community there, even into the early part of the church age. You have uh, th- three centers of Judaism in the intertestamental period and into the um, post Christian period into the, or rather into the, the uh, period after the temple, you have one community in Egypt, which is the the descendants of those who went down to Egypt with Jeremiah, and uh, uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem, about or at that time, in about 590 to 586, you have another group in Jerusalem, of course, and then you had a third group in Babylon. And you had a large community of Jews there. This is why Peter goes to Babylon and, uh, and refers to that in First Peter. He goes to Babylon to take the gospel to that large community of Jews that were still in Babylon. And Babylon continued. It's mentioned by various uh, uh, Greek explorers and others down through the centuries, and it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it just no longer has any real meaning or significance, but it's not lost like Nineveh. Nineveh in the north, which is across the Tigris from modern Mosul, which you hear about in the news because of its... uh, uh, the, the importance of Mosul in the northern part of, of Iraq. But Nineveh was lost completely. Nobody knew where it was. It was just covered over. It was completely obliterated uh, by the desert, and it was not rediscovered until Layard discovered it in about eight, uh, 1840s or so during the last uh, last century. But Babylon, the presence of Babylon, its location was always known, and there, as I say, there were always these these villages uh, that were there. Now, there's one other passage in the Old Testament that's important for us to look look at before we 
skip back to Revelation 17, and this is in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah is, along with Daniel, one of the most important uh, books for dealing with the uh, end times. Zechariah is the last book before Malachi. Malachi is the end of the Old Testament. It's Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. These three are called your post-exilic prophets. That's because they function, their ministry is after the exile during the time of of Israel's return under Zerubbabel and then later uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. So Zechariah is writing at about the time that they finish reconstructing the second temple, temple around 516, 518 B.C. Now, at that time, Babylon has been destroyed. Uh, not wiped out, but the, the Babylonian Empire has been defeated by the Persians. Uh, Babylon is already being uh, reduced in terms of its significance. It's still an important city in the Persian Empire, but it's not as important as it was under the under the Chaldeans. But it's 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 on the at the very beginning of its downward slide in history. Zechariah begins uh, actually with. Uh, seven or eight different night visions that are described in, in beginning with the end of chapter 1 and going through uh, chapter, uh, chapter 6. And this is the seventh of Zechariah's eight, um, the seventh of his eight night visions. And in verse 5 we read, Then the angel who talked with me, me being Zechariah, came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. Okay, we're going to have another uh, slideshow here. We're going to have another visual presentation, and um, you need to write this down, and the angel is going to interpret this for Zechariah. So I asked. He sees this vision. He's not sure what it is. He says, what is it? And the angel said, it's a basket that is going forth. It is a basket that is going forth, and the idea there in the basket is that this is a um, a ephah, which is a large. It's like it, we it, probably a better translation to bring it over into our language would be: this is a bushel. As soon as you hear the term bushel, you immediately think of some sort of measurement for. Uh, grain or something of that nature. It immediately brings to your mind something related to agriculture, uh, a bushel. And that was what an ephah was. It was a large measurement that they would use for measuring wheat or grain, uh, something of that nature, flour. So it said it's an ephah that is going forth. And he said this is the resemblance throughout the earth. Now, the ephah was how uh, these these large containers were how the grain would be stored and how the grain would be transported. So as soon as you hear and and it would would picture this in your mind, you're thinking in terms of commerce. You're thinking in terms of storing grain and moving it from one location to another. And so the ephah here is going to represent uh, commercial activity, uh, the uh, bring, it brings to mind the ancient uh, trucking system. You would uh, wrap these ephahs 
or mount them on the backs of camels, and then they would be uh, taken from one location to another along the, the uh, caravan roads. So uh, Zechariah sees this basket, this ephah, uh, used for transporting uh, grain, and inside the woman, I mean inside the basket, there's a woman, verse 7. Uh, here's a uh, lead disc. This is a lead cover that was down on the covering the top of the basket. And so the angel says to pick up the lead, the lead disc, lift the lid, and inside there's this woman in the basket. Now, what's going on? Well, the, the, this heavy lead cover would keep the woman trapped inside the basket, and this depicts God's control of history and God's control of the commerce related to this, uh, to this woman, and that in God's sovereign plan, this, this dimension of commerce is under God's control, not going to be released until it is God's timing. And so the woman is then given a name, not Babylon, but wickedness. Verse 8, then he said, this is wickedness, and he pushed her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. And so the woman is kept covered and down inside the basket. This is all symbolic indicating God's control over this this economic system. Then verse 9, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house. And the word there for house is not the word... Um, Bait, which is the Hebrew word for house, but it's hekel, hekal, which is the word for temple. So it is a house of worship. So they're going to build a hekel in the land of Shinar. Now, where is the land of Shinar? Right there. This is Babylon. They're going to build a temple, and this is where they're going to take the woman in the basket, and this is where she is going to release. They're going to build, have this temple for her. Uh, when it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. This shows a connection between worship or religion and this and commerce. It's a future event. All of these visions relate to the end times of Israel during the tribulation period. And this uh, woman is then taken to the land of Shinar, which is where Babylon is. It was the location of the Tower of Babel, and this is the location of the future uh, Babylon as the commercial center of the world. So we see certain parallels with Revelation 17. In Zechariah, there's a woman sitting in a basket. In Revelation 17, there is a woman sitting on the beast. And so the woman in both cases represents this end-time system. In Zechariah, there's an emphasis on commerce. In Revelation, there's an emphasis on commerce in Revelation 18:13. In Zechariah, the woman is wicked. In Revelation, the woman is the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. In uh, Zechariah... A temple is built for the woman, indicating a connection between religion and this commercial economic system. And in Revelation, the woman is related to religious idolatry. 
the, the future Babylon connects a political system, an economic system, and a religious system. In Zechariah, the woman is taken to Babylon. In Revelation, the woman is called Babylon. So this connects the two. We have a future restoration of a literal Babylon in Iraq that will become the center, the economic center for the end time kingdom at the end of the uh, tribulation period. And Babylon will be destroyed and wiped out by God as part of the judgments of the day of the Lord at the conclusion of the tribulation period. So it will become the destruction of Babylon will then become part of the um, the day of the Lord events and part of the end time, the end of the Armageddon campaign and the rest, the establishment of Christ's kingdom on the earth. Now, all of this is important for a number of different reasons. It shows that these threads all come together in Revelation, that there's a consistent unity of Scripture from Isaiah to, Jerem- Isaiah to Jeremiah, who's 150 years or so after Isaiah, to Zechariah, who's another century, not quite a century, 80 or 90 years after Jeremiah, all the way to uh, Revelation, which is written by John, um, you know, some 500, 600 years after uh, Zechariah. So there's a unity of Scripture. It shows the fulfillment of Scripture that even though uh, Babylon is pretty much laid waste now, it has not fulfilled the prophecy as God had described it. And so there will be a future time when there is that resurrection. That also shows, as you study through these things, that the very core of the thinking that we have in characterized by the king of Babylon is pride and arrogance. And pride and arrogance are at the very core of man's rebellion against God, but also pride and arrogance are, are at the core of every human system, every human religious system, every human economic system, every human political system, uh, because we are all fallen and we live in a fallen world. And the only time that there's going to be a, any kind of Real economic solution, our true political solution, is when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. Until then, there is no real solution to life's problems other than trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and then walking with the Lord using the faith rest drill and trusting in him to solve all the problems of our life. And that operates no matter what religious, economic, or political system a believer is under, whether it's in the Roman Empire, whether it's in the uh, Holy Roman Empire, whether it is in the United States of America or modern Iran or the former Soviet Union, any believer can have real soul freedom only by applying the principles of God's word to whatever circumstances uh, they find themselves in. Next time we'll come back, we'll get back into Revelation 17 and finish up our study there of the uh, revived Roman Empire, revived Babylon. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through your word on this particular subject and to trace through the Old Testament all that you have taught about Babylon and seeing its uh, culmination in a future judgment as you judge the kingdom of man and as you establish a rule, of, a future rule of righteousness and justice on the earth. 
Father, we know that today we yearn for righteousness and justice, but we live in a fallen world. And so the issue for us today is to walk by faith and not by sight and to trust in you because the only solution is to trust in your strength and not our strength or human strength for the solutions of life. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.